Okay, so in the United States, mm-hmm. this is for the rest of the world. In the United States, we have this thing called HIPAA. And HIPAA is the right to keep your medical records um, private. Okay, so that's just, you know, that type of thing. So I'm going to violate HIPAA right off the bat. So, Nick, Nick, were you born with two eyes that saw relatively about the same as each other? Uh, Does your vision fuse, meaning that you can see depth and both of your eyes are as equally um, effective um, uh, in communicating to the brain? Well, well, I can't uh, actually remember what I was born with, but um, later on I became aware that I could see three dimensions using my two eyes. Yes. Okay. Okay, so it, it, three dimensions. Um, you are by trade a sculptor, um, and uh, you are a relatively successful sculptor, uh, probably the most successful one I know. Um, you work in those three dimensions. Um, yep. yes. when are When you're conceiving of a project, at what point do you start sketching in more than just one view? Um, how do you approach that? Uh, so that's a really interesting question. It's there, there are two different ways to design things that I use. One of them is to make things directly in three dimensions, um, which is in many ways a lot easier than drawing. And I, But I do so- know... So you draw a maquette, right? Yes, I do draw a lot, but two-dimensional drawings are so radically different than Mm three-dimensional reality. Um, The the convention using drafting is to draw views from the three sort of main directions, you know, front, side, and overview, plan, view. Mm -hmm. And those arbitrary splitting the world up into these 90-degree angle views allows you to record all the information in rectilinear forms it actually gets a lot more complicated when you get into curves, which is what I do make. Mm -hmm. And the best source I found for learning how to understand that from a drafting point of view is the traditional method of boat design, where you draw, you basically divide things up into even more than three views. Mm -hmm. You slice up an object like a loaf of bread and you map each of the slices and it gives you a more detailed view of more complex shapes. So that's all kind of a way to break things down rationally and, okay. and record so them on paper. Be... So it's really an intellectual approach. And okay. what you're talking about is when you see with your eyes, and that is where you're aware of depth because your two different eyes have a slightly different point of view, and there's a little computer in your head that uses that difference to perceive depth. Okay. Um, doesn't work with one eye, doesn't work on paper. It only works in your brain, really. Yeah. Okay. So that was one, when I first started, um, okay, I uh, graduated with an MFA in graphic design in 2004. And my first teaching experience out of that time um, was, uh, I had to teach, you know, Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, uh, and drawing, uh, I did teach all of those things. But one of the things I did teach was Cinema 4D. I had to teach a 3D design uh, program. And that hurt my brain. That was a different way of 
thinking. So how does that, did, is that something that you, when you first started had, um, uh, using that methodology of, of slicing, was that something that, that um, helped you out? Well, yeah, it does help for, to conceptualize things. And it, it was a struggle at first. It, and, until you've practiced mapping three-dimensional things out, Mm -hmm. it's actually not that easy to grasp. There are a few people who seem to be born with an innate sense of, of form, but mm -hmm. most people have to really struggle to learn that. And the, the exercise of doing different drawings and different angles and slicing things up is extremely useful in training you to learn to understand structures. Once you understand the structures, it's much easier to perceive them or draw them or make them. But mm -hmm. actually understanding them, it, it takes time. It takes this, the thing that you perceive instinctively with your two eyes, that sense of three dimensions, it's so surprisingly unhelpful in actually understanding what things are, how they're made. I found okay. that actually making the things as well as learning how to draw them was much, much more enlightening than just looking at them. <laughs> so for me, that's how my brain works. It, okay. it, I, need, I okay. need to dissect things to really understand them and then put it back together again. Okay. Ethan, you make your living right now, or a vast majority of that living, working with three-dimensionally designed objects, cameras, um, uh, digitation devices, um, uh, ventilators. Um, so how, how do you go about when you're conceiving something, how do you go about thinking through the three dimensional parts? And I know that you start with a sketch. So how does that translate? Yeah. So I almost always start with a sketch. Um, but I'm probably thinking about things in three dimensions. Uh, there's unfortunately only so many complications that I can hold in my head at once. I don't know if you're a chess player, but you know, I can see maybe two, three moves ahead, which is, you know, enough, to, <laughs> enough to demolish a non chess player, but it's not enough to be competitive against anybody who plays chess once a week. Um, and so that's sort of. You know, I, I probably start just imagining and then, you know, figuring out how things interlock or are going to move around each other, or pivot or gears mesh. At that point, I start needing to break it down into usually two-dimensional sketches, um, maps of things, and then uh, some 3D sketches. But uh, mm -hmm. kind of a mix. I don't know if that's the, the greatest of answers. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot recently, and I think it's part of what makes photographs like drawings, is that they are fully a, a normal photograph, not, not these peculiar ones you're going to make us talk about today. Mm -hmm. It reduces things to two dimensions, and it takes away a whole bunch of information, but it also allows you to contemplate that slice over time and really understand it. So. There's a, a lot of information that becomes more accessible in a drawing or a photograph than it is in, you know, as it fleets by you in life, you know, and in, in mm -hmm. that that sort of analytic quality is is really powerful. And when we get to talking about stereo, I'm going to complain about it because to me, it's like 
reanimating a dead creature. You know, it doesn't bring it back to life. It's it just gives you this kind of crude facsimile of the experience of seeing things in three dimensions that okay. I find somewhat disturbing. <laughs> okay. So so now what I'm going to ask you, um, I'm gonna hold something up. I'm gonna hold up an example of a picture um a, a 3d picture um this was one that i took um uh and i took it using a single camera but i have printed it side by side mm -hmm. okay and let me tilt it uh, you know hopefully so i'm not getting too much glare but it is printed side by side and so um as it um uh it sits um it gives the illusion of three dimensions. Now, the question is, Nick, can you look at a photo like this? And I'm not asking anybody to look at it on our YouTube video uh, feed, um, but I am saying that- uh, if, Yeah, if I hold it the right distance from my nose and, and try and relax at the same yeah. time as concentrating, I can get a little of that 3D view, but I find it a strain, and then I'm not all that happy with where it gets me. <laughs> okay, so so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna talk about how um, how we get to that, how we get to uh, representing three dimensions with a two dimensional medium, right? Um, and you know, photography is a two dimensional medium. Um, uh, and we are so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna talk about stereo photography. We're gonna have a guest come in a little bit later in the show. But what do you guys say? Um, shall we start the homemade camera podcast? Let's do it. All right. Is that is that? This bobbing of your head indicate music. Yeah, yes. there will be music. And we're <laughs> people over here that right now. You just can't hear it. We're not audio capturing, and now people can hear us talking about it under the yeah, so when the graphic goes away. Yeah. We're ready. Uh, okay. So at this point, I'm going to say that none of us are video production professionals. Are you kidding me? Look at this guy. Oh. <laughs> I got okay. a laptop and a camera. Yeah, hey, I got. I have a lap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what we're going to start off uh, with is we're going to talk about the concept of stereo photography, and uh, stereo photography is something. This I don't know how how soon I didn't do any research on how soon after photography um, really came into existence. But, fairly quick i would say um there were um i think ethan just fell down um no, there were okay, <laughs> <our neck did>. um, <laughs> there were items um such as i'm holding up right now which is a stereo opticon um they were very popular i would say at the turn of the 20th century um uh, is that about right so Ethan, yep. Yep. what you know about the, the turn of the 20th century. And I would say, you know, well into the 30s. 
Um, I mean, I think they had revivals uh, yeah. at points in time, but yep. Yeah. So I don't know exactly when the one that I have um, was made. It, it has some parts that are made by me um, uh, because it, it came incomplete. Um, but the whole idea of, uh, well, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about that in viewing. Um, but there are, if, if you've ever been to an antique store, there are myriad opportunities to purchase cards that have two views on them and they are stereo cards. And, um, you know, they're from all over the world. Um, and they were often sold as like travelogue. Uh, they were sold as, um, you know, see the exotic Taj Mahal, see the um, exotic, um, uh, I don't know, Islands of Borman. Were, were classics. Yeah, okay, yeah, the, the pyramids. So now these, I believe, you know, these were um, not necessarily, well, okay. So then we're going to move up to the 60s, the 50s, the 60s. When did the... Um, Viewmaster, 50s or 60s. I did, I did it for those of you on the podcast. I, I, I did the advance uh motion on one of those with, with my hand up next to my eye. Um, and so those came in in the 50s, and you and and Viewmasters were you would buy the Viewmaster cartridge and it would have um anybody remember 10 shots 12 shots something like that um on a disc and you put it in and you could advance it and there were i don't know um 16 millimeter size i would think 16 the image was about 16 millimeter film yeah uh, maybe a little smaller so okay i can't stand this i have to break in here for a second okay yeah jump in anytime so uh the stereo, the first stereoscopic devices are actually uh -huh. older than photography. They were originally done by uh, an English physicist named Sir Charles Wheatstone, who described how stereoscopic vision worked and then created ways to do it using two drawings before they even had photographs. And this, so this starts in 1832. Um, and, and then later okay. when, when photography first arrives in more like 1841, um, they were able to very soon after that uh, start figuring out how to use photographs to do this. So it, it's it's older than photography. Okay. As a process. Well, thank you for that because uh, I did not do my research for this episode. Um, but it's it, it's older than photography by not a whole lot of time. So yeah, same um, time period that. that you know, a couple, 20 years, something like that. I would say, I would say it was, the development was contemporaneous with photography, right? Um, well, no, that would be wrong. It was before. <laughs> <laughs> development was the word. I didn't say invention, development. Um, so anyway, um, the, the whole idea is um, that pretty much as old as photography or a little bit older, um, we've had this concept of two images, um, being put in front of ourselves are being put in front of our two eyes. And if we look at those images individually, one with one eye, one with the other eye, we can get the illusion that we are in a, uh, a space that has front to back depth 
not just top to bottom and left to right depth. I just want to point out that we have that illusion when we just have our eyes open, right? We don't actually sense depth. We we have the illusion inside of our brains from two 2D cameras, which we call our eyes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, so but there is one critical difference, which is that the, the eyes are taking in information over time, and then they're fancying it up to, to make it more attractive to ourselves. Whereas with the stereo uh, photograph, a still photograph stereo, uh -huh. it's unnaturally still, and you can't get those little adjustments that happen when you move your head or when the subject moves, all that stuff. So there, to me, it always Whoa. looks like a pop-up book. The view always looks like a pop-up book where you, you see this, you know, these flat so, layers kind of going so off. So yeah, you're saying you're yeah. seeing in planes as right. opposed to actually seeing kind of a rounded dimension. feel. It, it's, it's really interesting to me how, how, I don't know how much of it is conditioning or, you know, maybe if we walked around looking at those all the time and they were higher resolution and yada, 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 maybe they would, you know, we'd get better at seeing them. I don't know. I think we're, we're going to get into some of the, the technical yeah. uh, capturing of stereo images and displaying them. But I think that sort of cardboard cutout look is an artifact from a poor stereographer or limited equipment. I think you really can get some some uh, depth curvature and um, there are even some yeah. methods for capturing the stereo images where you can look around just a little bit like a hologram, but those are not mm -hmm. so popular today. Yeah. Well, your iPhone does it. Um, if you move your iPhone side to side, you can give yourself this little, you know, where the, the background shifts side to side, you know, it uses the accelerometer to give you that kind of thing. That's much more of a plane existence um than um a, a, a true depth roundness so uh so anyway I, my whole point is that these you know uh, i think that actually ethan your point of do uh, of it being um uh, something that comes back over time, you know, certainly the viewmaster when i was a kid was the coolest thing in the world um, you know, did you, um, uh, Nick, did you look at Viewmaster, a lot of Viewmasters when you were a kid? Um, I, I, I had the same feeling when I was a kid. I looked at them. I thought, well, that's really wild. That's really cool. Yeah. And, but I'm really not very interested in looking at this anymore. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Ethan, how about you? Um, were Viewmasters a fascination? Yeah. Or so, I mean, I remember them popping up. My sister actually just sent me a Viewmaster without understanding really how 3D images work. And it uh -huh. has all 2D images in it. But I have one that showed up in the mail a couple of months ago. And I got uh -huh. my cousin Emmy's Viewmaster. She was about 10 years older than me. So she was a child of the 80s yeah. while I was a child of the 90s. And yeah. I had this whole set of like, you know, wild animals and creatures. So when you, came along, when you came along in the 90s, they were gone, right? I mean, I had a set from my cousin in the 80s, but I don't yeah. think, yeah, my peers did not have them unless, you know, they had older it's, friends give it, them to them. But I also it's remember. Kind of like, it's kind of like me, the big wheel. You guys remember the big wheel? Mm -hmm. It came out two years after I was too big to ride it. <laughs> oh, that killed me, man, because the big wheel is the coolest thing in the world. So you guys should just print out an even bigger big wheel and then you get to live that dream that you of missed. course. Yeah. What do you think eBay is all about? It's about capturing your childhood or 
Uh, but yeah, okay. So, um, so my point on this is okay. So Nick is holding up something. Nick, what are you holding up? Uh, they're just old pictures of uh, you know various stereo cameras from the turn of the century, uh, one hundred and twenty years ago. Okay, and they're pretty cool. So they, these were sophisticated a long time ago, and, they, and those ones probably work pretty well with the big glass or you know over large format uh, images that they were shooting in those older ones. Okay. Um, the problem with the ViewMaster isn't it like a tiny format? You know, it's it's what is it? It's like sixteen millimeter or something yeah, really yeah. tiny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it it is a very tiny format, but it it seems to be. Uh, boy, it's been a long time since I've looked at a Viewmaster. Uh, Ethan, since you have one currently, um, is is the resolution decent on a Viewmaster reel? Yeah, it's fine. I wouldn't make a giant print from it, but you know. Okay. Yeah, but that's the whole point. You're not making a giant print from it. You're seeing those pixels at at you know, or those pixels. Yes, I said pixels about film. Uh, those, you know, bits of grain at their 100% size, I think. No, magnified. You're seeing them magnified, aren't you? Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, it, you know, it, I, I think it, I'm sure it depends on the, the film stock being used, but, but they are enough to really, um, to really grab some people, uh, grab their brains um, you know, my no. grandpa was real into uh, 3D photos. He was a photographer uh -huh. from the 40s to the 80s. And um, he shot a lot of, like, toothpaste and toothbrush and needle and thread catalogs. Like, you know, thousands of pictures of every item from a collection. But he would also do, you know, smaller collections of, like, dresses or whatever for um, manufacturers to show to wholesale buyers. He once uh -huh. told me this story where, you know, if... If a manufacturer, you know, this was the, the old garment district of New York, wanted to show a collection of dresses to a potential buyer or store, they would take a set on, you know, Viewmaster or the like uh, of stereo oh. photos of, you know, models wearing the dresses to the buyers. And he said, you know, this was like an all sort of good old boys uh, club. I don't think there were any women involved in any of the decisions. And he said he used to slip 3D nudie pictures like kind of into the middle of the rolls and all of the manufacturers really loved that. It, it was real, like, attention-grabbing uh, for the buyers. He said he did very well that way. It, it's the garment industry version of payola, uh, yeah. although I'm sure there was plenty of payola in the uh, garment industry of New York. Um, so, yeah, okay. So it, it, throughout the stretch of photography um, at, at various times, We've had this fascination with stereo photography. And, you know, and it, I, if, we're calling it stereo photography. Um, would either of you argue 3D photography? Um, or would you argue that is something else? Um, or is that an interchangeable name? Interchangeable for me, I think. Yeah, okay. they're they're both sort of vague descriptions of something you can't really feel unless you look at it. And it, yeah. it is, it is an exciting feeling. The first time you see something pop out of what it yeah. seems like it ought to be a still two dimensional image and it sticks out at you. And then of course we've probably all gone to a movie where they, 
they had some monster come lurching out into the audience, you know. Right. When, when, and, when, and maybe we should make a mention of that, that if you were at, if you were going to see a movie, um, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, um, you'd be hard pressed to see a 2D version of a movie, right? Everything was coming out in 3D at a period of time. And, and is anything coming out in 3D? Well, nothing's coming out in theaters right <laughs> yeah. now. But, it, but that pretty much died. Um, I was listening to uh, the Future of Photography podcast. And uh, one of the things that um, Aid said was uh, he has a 3D TV because at the time that he bought his TV, every TV was a 3D TV. Um, everything that was sold uh, in the UK at that point um just because you could i guess well yeah i mean it was it was probably a way to bump up the price by 300 bucks uh or 500 dollars you know whatever it was um but um uh have you guys seen a 3d um a, have you guys see, had the experience of a 3d effect in on a home 3d tv Okay. No, only in a in a full size theater. Okay. Um, uh, Ethan, what uh, what? Yeah, you want to talk about uh, lenticular screens, cross polarized screens, shutter screens with uh, LCD shutter glasses? I've seen them all. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so so maybe that's roll four. Um, but I'm uh, all I'm asking is what? How did the 3D television effect work for you? Um, I mean, versus uh, non-moving images. I thought it was cool. It really depends. You know, in that flurry of 3D, there's... So I once gave a lecture uh, in New Orleans where I learned about that the only thing more embarrassing than nobody showing up to your lecture is when one person shows up to your lecture in a giant hall mm -hmm. and you still have to give it to one person. But we had a grand old time. And it was all about the many different ways of capturing and displaying stereographic images. Oh, um, okay. And, you know, I think when done right, 3D can be amazing, uh, both in capture and display. In that flurry of 3D movies, people were sort of like, um, you know, auto-routing uh, cutouts and making flat layer things, and they never shot a lot of it in 3D. And so the uh -huh. effect was really terrible on a lot of those movies. But once in a while, you get one that was actually shot with two lenses or you get something like a Pixar movie that, you know, you can render any camera angle and yeah. you happen to be sitting the correct distance away from the screen and you're not sitting there like this with cross-polarized glasses. So you have double image and a headache all the time, like everybody complains about because they just don't know. And it's, it's a wonderful yeah. experience. But like... Because I think so many people don't really understand what's going on, um, including a lot of people who are making uh, a lot of this three-dimensional content, right? You often have a really poor experience, but I wouldn't chalk that up to the technology. I would say, you know, like a Nikon isn't a bad camera because you took a bad picture with it. It's just, you know, sometimes things are good, sometimes they're not, and, and there's like right. appropriate subjects for it. Well, the okay. entire the entire film industry is full of disappointments like that. I mean, it's not just yeah. 
okay, my so entire I'm gonna, career. I want to hold that off for roll four. Um, uh, how to shoot and how to view. Um, but in the meantime, let's end this roll and let's move on to roll two. Okay. Ah, there we go. And the music's playing. <laughs> oh, we are so smooth. Um, uh, you know what I think we should do is actually, while this music is playing, um, we should talk about the, you know, we, roll two is sort of uh, some technical thing, but we should just break down the ways to capture and display before we get to Okay. Why don't you, okay? So why don't you go ahead and come out of this role and uh, and do that? Okay. Uh, and we're back, um, Graham. Can I tell you a story before we get into this? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Story so time. I became fascinated with 3D photos in 2009, and I think like part of my um, superpower is that I get a physical pain in my head if I don't understand something. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that leads me to try and understand something, which is helpful, but it also leads me to not be able to sleep because I have a headache because I'm thinking about, you know, the interaction of interocular distance and uh, overlap uh, in the middle of the night. Anyway, around 2009, it's kind of before I was on Reddit. I don't know if Reddit existed back then or you know, it wasn't really photo.net. I found some, like, obscure message boards about 3D photos, and I went back and forth with these guys around the world. You know, I'd wake up at 4 in the morning and post a question I had and, like, sit by the computer and wait for somebody to answer. Um, and I got, I got pretty into it, and I wound up building a series of 3D camera rigs, which I actually have piled behind about 400 pounds worth of mongoose parts, so I didn't get it out. But what it was was... Um, two Canon Rebel XTIs, like eight megapixel little digital cameras. And I had some straps that synced their zoom lenses so they could zoom together. And they were on these angle brackets, originally just Home Depot things. Um, and eventually I had some custom machined aluminum brackets that held it all together. And I had a shutter release cable that was spliced that would go to yeah. two of them so I could trigger both of their shutters together and autofocus together. And I started taking some 3D photos just for, you know, shits and giggles. Um, and we can talk about sort of like the technical things that went into it later. But um, Technically, I, what is a shit and what is a giggle? <laughs> I'll show you. Uh, that's, that's on our OnlyFans. Oh, so yeah. um, <laughs> I wound up having this in New York, and I took it with me when I moved to New Orleans in 2009, 2010. And I had this... Uh, bank job. At the, at the time, I had a bunch of friends who worked for uh, Urban, was the umbrella for Urban Outfitters and uh, Free People and uh, Anthropology. They ran photo studios there, and I was visiting them in uh, Philadelphia, and we kind of thought, like, this would make a great sort of fun ad campaign. Nothing too serious, like funny photos, whatever, but in 3D, where you get, like, uh, anaglyphic glasses, red and blue glasses in the mail. And so... I started shooting a bunch of like mock ads uh, in 3D, 
And at some point, I was working for a credit union in New Orleans in 2010, and they sent me, this was sort of like during uh, a lot of the fallout from uh, the housing market collapse in 2008. And so they sent me to um, a training in Los Angeles that was about uh, foreclosure mitigation. <laughs> and so, you know, I fly out there and I know that American Apparel is in Los Angeles, a few miles away from my hotel and the seminar. And like, I had to get the certification, but also somebody had just denied me for like my dream job. I had been working at this credit union and I really wanted to be a financial analyst. Like I thought, you know, working with data rather than people would be more my speed. And <laughs> I had been doing really well. I had good reviews and I applied for this job and they gave it to somebody else. And I was like, okay, I, I need out. Anyway, so I fly to Los Angeles. I have my 3D camera with me. And I'm thinking like this, I don't know if you remember like the American Apparel ads from, you know, the mid 2000s, but they were, yeah. they were oh, a little... three quarters naked people. Yeah. Yeah. Am, they were like right? a little, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but they, they had this sort of like, I mean, we could have a long discussion about the ethics of all of it, but that's not where I'm sure. going. They had this sort of Terry Richardson style, direct flash, uh, snapshot oh. style of look that I thought was pretty useful. And, you know, it fit within what I thought would be um, a good use of stereography because uh, mm -hmm. models were fairly close, so you could get some depth. Anyway, so I'm out there and I just like. I get on the internet and I hire a model for the day. And I think, I don't, I don't even know if I paid her. I think like we traded, I said, I'd buy you like whatever, whatever clothes you want. Uh, so long as like they match an ad that we're going to reshoot in 3d. And so I do this like over one night while I am uh, at this seminar. And then um, <laughs> I took a lunch break uh, from this seminar uh, and actually I was so late that I did not get certified, uh, for the thing that I was supposed to. And I thought I was going to get fired when I got back, although I, I didn't, uh, but I, <laughs> I went to American apparel with like my laptop and a stack of 3d glasses. And, uh, I was like, uh, hi, I'm here to see Dove Charney, who is the uh, founder of that business. And, and it almost worked. The, the guy at the desk, like almost called up and he was like, wait, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, but I just came here from, uh, Louisiana. I'm only here for the week. Let me show you what I want to show him. <laughs> so I break out my laptop. I give him a pair of glasses and he goes, oh, you know, pretty cool. Okay. Let's, let's see. I'm not going to call him. Right. And so like, I'm just sitting there and he waits for like somebody higher up to just happen to be passing through the lobby. And he's like, you know, Hey, take a look at this. And so like I, I show the next person and, you know, everybody's like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, it's good, good, uh, reproduction of this ad. Uh, I'll see what I could do. And so I sit there for like four hours doing this, like waiting for, you know, that person to come back from lunch and like tell somebody higher up than them. And then they would, when they got out to lunch, went out to lunch, they would, uh, stop and see me. And then like four and a half hours later, some girl comes down and goes, okay, I'm, I'm here to take you to Dove's office. <laughs> And, uh, so like, it was a lot of chutzpah. I was wearing like, you know, dress clothes, but I had a SpongeBob hat on and, uh, I went up there and I showed him my, my 3d photos that I had reproduced some of his ads. 
And I said, look, you know, I don't want to be a photographer. I would, I would like to be a data analyst. But, you know, I, I'm more than willing to work 24-hour uh, days and do some of this if, if you will let me uh, do my dream job of making Excel macros <laughs> for a living. And so, he's like, you know, he's like a weird, funny guy. I owe him a lot. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, this is, uh, I like this. You know, tell you what. You go to your seminar, you come back here every day after work, you can work in the factory until uh, midnight, and then, you know, you tell me if you want to come here after you're done. So uh, every day I would just, like, go to the seminar, even though I, I had missed that half a day and, and could not get certified, and I uh, was, like, kind of very apprehensive about being fired when I went back to New Orleans, and... Um, Every day, I would just go till one, two, three in the morning and walk around this factory, which was kind of like my first introduction to large-scale manufacturing, and, and I think about that often in what I do here. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, eventually, uh, I, got, I got a job for American Apparel. They flew me around the world, also with my 3D camera, mostly fixing RFID problems. Uh, not, in fact, taking any photos. I never had an American Apparel ad, which was something I was sad about. But, uh, yeah, it was, that was how I wound up leaving New Orleans and moving to Los Angeles and uh, becoming a data analyst. <laughs> All because of stereo photos. I know this was kind of a tangent, but I've never told you guys that story. Yeah, yeah. So, no, so tell me about the camera that you were shooting with. What okay. was that camera? That was that was a great camera, I, you know. So it, I was making anaglyphs at the time. That's um, mm -hmm. that's sort of when you overlay a red and a blue uh, copy of the left and right image and look at them with a pair of glasses. And you know, it doesn't lend itself to like high res, beautiful prints. And so, you know, me having two two hundred dollar uh, Canon Rebels was more than enough. And so, you know, oh, there were... that, that was the rig. It was two. Uh, and were they digital rebels? They were digital rebels. Yeah. So I don't okay. really love film 3D. That's uh, I, I love film, but I think, uh -huh. you know, there's so much that I wound up doing to it. That would be I didn't have a dark room at the time, but even, yeah. even if I did kind of murder in a dark room. So I was actually really into color anaglyphs, which. Generally, when you see this effect, it's black and white. So there's a blue and a red, and they merge, and you see a right. black and white image. Um, I was doing full color with some uh -huh. tweaks where you have to translate colors like blue and red to eliminate ret retinal rivalry, which is sort right. of a brain flashing that gives you a headache. We gotta we could talk about that later. But um, yeah, there were two digital cameras, and I had a bunch uh -huh. of scripts that would... Um, align them and translate the colors and uh yeah, it was oh okay fun okay um okay so let's talk a, a little bit about what you need in order to be successful in making a 3d camera so um there are um if anybody is looking at my Instagram account or my Flickr account over the last uh, two months, three months, something like that, you'll see some 3D photography that I'm putting up there that, uh, you know, are two matched pairs of images side by side. Um, I've done that all with, 
with my pocket camera, um, with my Ricoh R1S that uh, always lives in my in my pocket. It's a little um, uh, point and shoot. It's got a 30 millimeter or a 24 millimeter lens, depending on what mode you're you're shooting in. And um, the way I've been doing that is I do the 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 shoot and then move. And um, that is a, and uh, let me tell you what a shoot and move is for those of you who are listening. You take a picture and then you move a certain distance either to the right or to the left. Always do it the same direction so you know which one is going to be the right image and which one's going to be the, the left image. I, I move to my right. Um, and I move about in interocular distance from one eyeball to the next eyeball, but it's a guess. And if I'm standing up, it's one way. And if I'm sitting down, I'm a little bit off uh, the other way. So that is one way of doing, of creating a three-dimensional image. And I've done that. Uh, I started doing that seriously 2012, 2010, somewhere right in there. Uh, so I've been doing them for, for 10 years. So let's just say 10 years. Um, but I have also done what you did, which is you have two um, relatively inexpensive cameras. You put them on the same rail. You figure a way to trigger them at the same time. Um, I did that with point-and-shoot digital cameras, and I've got a new system. Uh, I'm waiting for the second one. Um, uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but you know, you put them on a rail or you put them, um, you know, butt to butt. And so that you, you're either taking a, a, a vertical picture or a horizontal picture. And I want to talk a little bit more about that, um, as we go. But one of the things I, I want to talk about the things that we need, if you're going to work with a camera that actually has two lenses, two bays, um, you know, like the, the realist, um, uh, and, um, any, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, the Lomo Sputnik. Um, those are cameras that, you know, have two lenses, two film, uh, cabins, I don't know, film compartments, two light compartments, uh, exposure compartments, um, and they shoot on one roll of film. Um, and they shoot, you know, they trigger at the same time. Um, they usually have a focus system that moves both lenses at the same time, and they have an aperture uh, and shutter speed uh, device that makes sure that they trigger the same way. So that is, that's the idea where you're taking, essentially you're, you're, you've got a single camera body that has two full camera systems within it. Uh, they share a transport system. Um, so I'm going to say the first thing that we need in order for this thing to work properly is a matched pair of, of lenses. Would you agree with that, Ethan? That's number one. Yes, traditionally. Yeah. <clears throat> I, 
I would agree with it. And I just, I just had an idea that spins yeah. off from that. Um, has anyone tried this? A think about a quad lens reflex camera with binocular eyepieces that would allow you to see in three dimensions as you focused and captured and framed. Oh, so you're is saying a TLR. But it's yeah, but you, right. But with some binocular two. eyepieces and, and some sort of cleverly arranged, maybe trapezoidal layout so that your yeah. your viewing lenses worked with your eyes in real time to give you an I, optical three dimensional view. I do not know of any. Ethan, do you know of any? Um, not in film. Uh, in digital, uh -huh. yes, it exists. And so, right. you know, if right. depending on, and we'll talk about, yeah, the Fuji, exactly, uh, the real 3D, but also things like Lytro. And so my caveat to one single or two matched lenses is um, I actually wrote the Wikipedia article on Ren Ang and the planoptic camera back in 2004 when he released his uh, thesis at Stanford about uh, said device, um, which later became the company Lytro, where he ray traced light paths from one single lens by using a planoptic or, or fly eye type of array over a contacts digital sensor. Uh, that was a pretty big sensor. And so that's, you know, it's almost cheating because now he has hundreds of lenses, but he had only one taking lens. Anyway, the, the concept became the company Lytro, and that's another way to do it. And the other things, you know, obviously is the Nimslo and the Nishika and one of my prototypes that use more than two lenses for uh, getting not only a 3D view, uh, but a 3D view you can kind of look around a little bit or make wiggle. I'm sure we'll talk about wiggle graphs. And so there are other mm -hmm. um, capture techniques besides just two matched lenses, but two matched lenses is a pretty simple, great way to start, particularly with film. And I can see here that they were already playing with beam splitter versions of this in 1894 um, yeah. using using mirrors. So, I mean, all this stuff has a long history. And that and that is the other method. That's the other main method is you have uh, a single film box, but you find a way to split the lens and you can you can buy bolt on lens splitters um uh or or if you have an slr you know an interchangeable lens camera you can uh you can buy the lens splitter version um of that camera where it, it's you know it, it, it's essentially just two images that split and then are brought back together via mirrors those are almost always terrible yeah uh, i would yeah <laughs> so, but if you were to build, uh, Ethan, if you're going to build a film, even though you said you didn't really like the film sure. version, if you were to build a film uh, uh, camera, what would you do for your lenses? What would, where would you approach that aspect? Yeah, so of, if I was uh, building a film rig, right, and so... You know, I'm I'm gonna get more into the realm of Nick than of Ethan here because I I don't think that I'm ever gonna build a single devoted 3D film camera. I have some prototypes for digital cameras, but I got like six planned. But yeah, okay. So I mean, I think <laughs> I would just buy. I would do it the same way I did a digital camera and actually run two rolls of film through separate cameras that I would sync 
in the same uh-huh. way, right? So um, the way I did it is I prefer vertical uh, stereo images yeah. for a number of reasons. Um, yeah. And I think for me, it's very important to have an adjustable interocular distance so you can adjust the, uh, let's say, depth contrast, how, how much uh, things pop out, right? So we have pretty fixed depth let's contrast. Talk, let's define that. Interocular distance is the, is the distance from one pupil to the next pupil. Um, I have just looked it up. The average for humans appears to be 63 63 millimeters across is what, well, this is what Google says. Okay. Yeah. Average. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but that you, you, you are my pupil and you are thousands of miles away. How's this working? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. in that case, we can take uh, stereo images of space. And maybe that's actually yeah. a fun project that we could do together, actually, is uh, we all point at the North Star and take some pictures and make some I'm- stereo renderings. Actually, I'm I'm all for that. Um, uh, I mean, it's the essentially the concept of the very large array uh, radio telescope, right? The VLA, which is you, you you've all seen it. It's the line of big satellite dishes that all turn all at the same time. We've all seen that thing. That's the exact concept of In it, person. right? Well, they do some other things, but yes, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, so I, I would have two cameras that I could adjust the, um, you know, the, I'm talking about the simple one. And basically, it's just the film version of the digital one I already built, which is I had a bottom rail uh, that had tripod screws and slots instead of holes, mm-hmm. right? So then on that, I had uh, aluminum L brackets, and I could slide those L brackets closer together or farther apart, depending upon what effect okay. I wanted. And, and and you have a little scale marked like cross-eyed, wall-eyed, different, <laughs> different configurations. Right? No, I, I you know I didn't get very precise. I was mostly shooting humans and and models. Uh, so <laughs> so is this is this a little is this vaguely analogous to baseline distance that if you uh-huh. get the pupils farther apart, does that give you an advantage? Uh, well, in it depth gives perception you, it, more precision or yeah. So um, the no. farther apart things are right so if you have something that's let's say my head is a foot deep right and you're looking Mm -hmm. at it uh let's say from 65 millimeters apart interocular distance and my head is perceived as a foot deep now if you move these uh let's say a foot apart my head might look like it's 10 feet deep and and so in certain situations like if uh you have a very large interocular distance and you go to take a macro photo so one camera is here and one camera is here um, and you're looking at something right here, both cameras miss it. And and so the overlap is very small and it doesn't quite work. Now, if I'm shooting, right. a lot of people would shoot 3D photos of scenics, right? With a stereo realist where their camera is like here and here. And you might see like a church that's close, like kind of pop out looking cardboard and everything else is kind of on a slightly different plane. But everything kind of looks like, you know, closely stacked cutouts at that point if you really want to take a picture of something far away, you need to increase that interocular distance so that you have um, a super stereo perception. Um, Got it. You know, what I found is a lot of times I would just keep the cameras very close to human eye distance, let's say 80, 90 millimeters apart. And I would make sure that I'm shooting something that had a depth range of, you know, six to 15 feet away or, or four to 
12 feet away. And if anything was closer, I knew that, you know, I'm going to have some overlap and alignment problems. And if anything was farther away, it would just look flat. And so I really tried very hard to think about, you know, what is the depth contrast of this scene? Like how, what's the closest object? What's the furthest object? Is there some continuity between, you know, is it, is it this, you know, just sort of like somebody reached, I had a lot of pictures of like somebody holding something up at me, you know, that I could make pop out of the screen. But, um, you know, I, I think um, an adjustable interocular distance is important if you were building sort of like a all purpose stereo rig, whereas it's base, basically then it's like a zoom lens. Uh in a, in a way you, you can, you can change the sense of depth by changing the point of view, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Oh, Sorry. go ahead. The other thing that I would do is I would actually use zoom lenses on these things, uh, because if I want to shoot something far away and I want some depth perception, I often want a longer lens. Whereas most of the things I was shooting like were, you know, humans at 28 millimeter or 35 millimeter equivalent pretty close up so I could get that sense of depth with sort of a compact rig. Um, and the way I dealt with it is I just took both zoom lenses, I racked them all to one side, and then I took a backpack strap and I wrapped it around the two and cinched it down so that when sure. I turned one lens, they turned together. Um, it was actually pretty effective. The other thing I would okay. do is use an autofocus oh, camera um, mm-hmm. so that you could sync the focus or uh, at least use one autofocus camera uh, or manual focus camera and sync the two uh, focuses so that when you focus with one, the other moves in sync with it. Yeah, so you put one in manual, one in, yeah. Or you could use my four-eyed Roloflex idea where they're all on, the lenses are all moving in and out on one plane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Now, I, I... I think that there's something to that. And just to let you guys know, um, I've sent Ian the, the, the link for him to come in uh, at any point. Um, but he was just taking out the bins for, uh, <laughs> so it, it may be a couple of minutes before, uh, before he comes in, but just want to alert you, um, Ethan, uh, about that. Okay. So I'm going to offer a different opinion. Um, and that is that while I understand if you're going to be, you're in Switzerland and you want to take pictures of mountains and you want them to appear 3D, uh, the ability to adjust the interocular distance is is key, you know. Um, uh, so um, the the... The thing that I want to put forth, though, is the idea that if you have the interocular distance established as human normal, you are in most situations going to get a good result. If, I, so well, most, I think I, I would agree with that, except I would change most to like in situations where you're photographing you know, from four to 15 feet away. Right? It's, it's not yeah. a good, uh, like you know, most situations for somebody might be like all landscapes or all sports. Right. But like, yeah, I, I get what you're talking about. I just wanted to be a little bit more specific. Okay. So, but what I'm go- going to say is the general use camera. Okay. The most common, um, uh, general use option 
um, is uh, is to um, use the to go with an interocular distance that is the same as your your average human viewers interocular distance. Now, um, we are just being joined um, right now uh, by Ian Fleming, um, who apparently is back from taking the bins up. So <laughs> um, I'm not sure he hears us yet, um, but um, he has been taking a lot of pictures and posting a lot of pictures oh in stereo. <laughs> All right. <Long> yeah. <laughs> okay, and you're there. Um, so, Ian, uh, Ethan and I are I debating the concept. Can you hear us, Ian? Oh, can you hear us, Ian? I can hear you guys. As okay, as you there can we hear go. Me. Yeah, yes, so, yeah. Can. you're great. So, Ian, um, Ethan and I are debating right now the interocular distance. I, I can hear you fine, guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, well, oh. one second, Graham. Hey, Ian, uh, turn off the stream and just watch us on Google Meets. Otherwise, you're on like a one or two minute delay. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Cool. Let me try that. Okay. Um, so um, here's our our basic question. You've been using um, a stereo camera that shoots in 35 millimeter, correct, Ian? Yeah, I've been using the Kodak stereo from the 1950s, a Bakelite beast. Okay, okay. <laughs> so that has um, a fixed interocular distance. And do you, do you know what the, uh, the lens focal length is on that? Well, that's a good question, which I don't. Yeah. I could go and get, get it and have a look, but I don't. Yeah. I, I'm okay. guessing it's 35 to 40 millimeters. I don't think yeah. it's 50 mil. It's the Kodak... Stereo camera that I think that's it basically. There, there's oh, okay. Let's see if I can come up with it. Um, and uh, do 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 it's coming up eventually. Come on, Wikipedia, don't fail me now. Um, so it occurs to me that what um, oh, you, we were talking about earlier, Ethan, that the distances where this three dimensional feeling works best of say four to 15 feet are also the distances where our brain can do a fairly good job with just our eyes. It, and as soon as you get too close or too far away, it's, you know, you really lose a lot of your depth perception. It, you know, that's kind of the range that our, our brain works best at too. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so here, and it's not coming up what the, uh, what the lenses are. Maybe I can get a picture and it'll I can go and get the camera if you want. Oh yeah. Let's, let's um, continue with what we're doing now, here's what I wanted to wanted to express with that, um, and uh, he'll be right back. <laughs> um, okay, so interocular distance is important when you are shooting things that are far away or up close. Um, uh, the uh, uh, being able to adjust that is important when you're shooting far away or up close. Does it say, Ian? Yeah, it's 35 mil. Oh, a 35 focal millimeter focal length. length. Yeah, okay. F3, and it's a three f 3.5 maximum. Aperture. Okay. Now the images that come out of that are square, correct? They are. They're five perf. Yeah. 
Okay. So if they're square, that means they're uh, they're essentially 28 millimeters uh, are, um, or 24 millimeters by 24 millimeters. So a 35 well, millimeter the, lens. The official um, aperture is 23 by 21. That's what the slide is. Oh, 23 by 21. Okay. So a 35 millimeter lens is going to be about normal. Right. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay. So here's part of the deal is uh, now I'm shooting with, um, you know, a Ricoh R1S. I have varying interocular distances when I move from the left to the right. What I've noticed with the pictures that you've been posting versus the pictures that I've been posting is that your pictures feel like much more of a natural image than mine do. Now I'm shooting with a 30 millimeter um, focal length on, um, you know, a 24 by 36 millimeter standard um, frame size. And so I'm shooting wide. I have a movement, but it is an uneven movement. Whereas you've got that, stable interocular distance you have that stable uh normal image size and i noticed that yours seem to be much more natural when i look do you uh have have you felt the same way when you look at at some of my pictures oh <clears throat> your phones are just full of that <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah so um uh, mine uh they do work they're reasonably consistent out of the camera, but I do uh, run them through the excellent Stereo Photo Maker program. Okay. Uh, and I auto-align, which just takes... It does what you would do if you were mounting the slides. It takes the horizontal and vertical... Uh, tries to take the horizontal and vertical alignment mismatches out and tries to get the best match for the foreground images so they're sort of on top of each other, really. Okay, yeah, tell us what. So, tell us about that software. So, Stereo Photo Maker, uh, guy in Japan, uh, written it. It's free. Although I would advise, if you're going to use it quite a bit, give him a donation because he's written fun. So, it is the best software for processing stereo photography. You can you can input into it like I do, left and right, and then output them as anaglyphs, cross-eyed, or MPO, MPO files to go to your Fuji if you want to view them on the screen or your Fuji on the back screen. Okay. Um, so, uh, and it's got, it also does the, if you had a, a single image, it will do the depth map stuff and you try and help you produce a stereo image from a single image if oh, you wanted okay. to do. so it's so, quite a powerful program oh okay so that that's considerably different from the way that i produce mine i um now i'm taking two sequential frames yeah. from a 35 millimeter um you know roll of film i've digitized them I take them into Photoshop. I put one directly on top of it, of the other, and I find a point in the. I'm not doing the frame. I'm doing an object. Yeah, so yeah. there's a there's an object that I will have that will overlap, and then there will be other objects that are you know, foreground and background that don't overlap. Yeah. So and then um, I then double. I crop it, crop out whatever I'm going to crop out, 
and then I double the size of the canvas and move them apart. Oh, okay. um, so I'm working, yeah, I'm working considerably more, uh, less analytically, shall we say. Um, yeah, well, that, that, I think if that works, if what you see works and works for your eyes, then that's what uh -huh. it's all about. Because I've got the Fuji W3, so I hardly use it, actually. But on the okay. back of that, you can take the two files, and then in post, if you like, you can vary the distance between the two frames and physically see how that affects the 3D on the back screen. Oh, really? Okay, so just even just looking on the back screen... That works. Yeah, because that, yeah, it does. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so, um, what, um, when you're taking a picture, um, what have you noticed or what, to your estimation, makes for a good subject? Um, and what makes for a good scene in 3D versus, um, you know, you, you take it, you look at it, and it looks, ex you know, it, there's no advantage. Um, you need a good foreground object of some sort, I think. To, okay. Uh, some, some interest in the foreground, not too close to the camera. Uh, and some, a lot of mine you'll see have got the classic, um, you know, um, infinity point shots going away with okay. the thing. The, they the tend to work line. quite well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. You're giving some extra handrails to people uh, to help them kind of enter into the three-dimensional experience. I just want to throw in real quick, Graham, that you're, uh -huh. you're a method of jogging your head side to side. Yeah. You might actually get have some advantage if you turn the camera into portrait mode. Um, oh yeah, because, I do. Yeah. yeah, and then that, that makes me think of this um, approach. Oh, if you get cameras with a with a, you know, they're small enough, you might be able to get a decent interocular distance by just attaching two cameras together. Okay, so that actually comes to. Uh, I'm holding up a Minolta Freedom Dual C. And it has the advantage of being very cheap. Um, so this came uh, on Friday, and I've just gotten a notice that out on my front step, I have the other one that I am going to mount butt to butt, bottom to bottom, so that I can do this type of thing where I am triggering the shutter at the, yeah, it's not on triggering the shutter at the same time hey. because the one thing now when i'm when i'm shooting portrait and i um with one camera uh, with with a single lens i take the picture and then i move over and i take the picture well if you have anything moving so um like i've been taking a lot of pictures at this like nature area that's near my house where i've been doing some walking lately um, and if it's a windy day, uh, the reeds are blowing and they're in a different position for the left image and the right image. The waves are in a different position of the water. A bird would be in a different position. So that is, that's what I'm working with on this. Now, two cameras, less than $20 shipped each, which I'm really happy about. Um, although the batteries are like, eight bucks a piece. Um, and, and I'm going to be putting this together 
And the idea with, and there's a reason why I chose this camera besides the $20 a piece. So it's a, a cheap setup. Electronic and that shutter. Is, say it again. Electronic shutter. Electronic, well, that's certainly going to be an advantage because then the uh, exposures are, are closer to right on. Well, but also um, that you can sync them. I can sync them. Uh, I don't know that I can sync these. Oh, if I can. oh yeah. Well, hold on with that. But this particular camera has two different lenses. It has a 40 millimeter lens and it has a 28 millimeter lens. And the reason why I went with this rather than any sort of zoom is that this has a built in normal. Okay, that 40 millimeter lens is a built in normal, and that is super advantageous to what my goal is, um, which is to get a relatively normal feeling image. Now, um, uh, Ethan, how the heck do I sync so, the, the shadow? Wire them up to one button. Yeah, so there's two ways to do this. I think the simplest way is that camera probably has an IR remote, uh, in which case you could buy one IR remote, and I'm sure it would trigger both of them relatively at the same time. Um, yes, and all the garage doors in the vicinity. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other way that I would probably do it is take the top cover off of that camera and wire in so the the shutter button basically just has one or two contacts and i would solder a wire to the actual taking contact uh and i would just link the two between cameras uh -huh. and one camera would close both uh, shutters at the same time so this is doable with mechanical shutters uh, but uh, -huh. uh you need to build some linkages and yada yada it, it becomes harder uh, electronically, you know, uh, two wires should do you. And and maybe you and I will have a uh, separate, um, you know, uh, live stream uh, video chat or private video chat where I walk you through pulling the guts of that camera oh. out and sinking. Oh, that the... is that is so wrong. You are going to get <laughs> a flat rate box with two cameras in it and <laughs> you're going to do it and send it back and videotape it uh, or you know or videotape it yeah earn I in this century uh, record it and uh, and put it up on the uh, the homemade camera uh, YouTube channel so um, so yeah we could uh, yeah that's certainly a way it does seem to have a remote um, I just have to uh, track it down, figure out what the remote is. Probably go to Butkus, look at the manual, and um, uh, and then you know, track down the remote. That is a good way to do it. Um, in the meantime, I'll probably be pressing buttons. But um, so this comes back to a little bit of what we were talking about before, and that is when you are building something like this, you really need to have matched opticals, right? Um, you need to have matched um, exposure. So 
um, the, the thing that I was thinking about, if you're building something and, and right now we're talking about a 35 millimeter camera, but if you're building say a 120 camera, um, and you know, I have the Kraken body, um, you know, I can put two, two lenses out on a Kraken body. Um, you need to have, um, what I've been, uh, I've coined the rail, uh, which is coined after Ray, um, raid, which is redundant array of inexpensive drives. I'm saying redundant array of inexpensive lenses. So something along the lines of an Optar, you know, um, maybe a 135 Optar, if Nick can ever get that back to me, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I will pretty soon. But the problem with those are the, the shutters are probably not going to be firing at the same, you know, on those older. Oh, uh, I bet you can. I bet at certain speeds it'll be pretty close. Usually, pretty close. usually yeah. around a hundred is pretty dead on on those old shutters. So okay, yeah. yeah. So if you're doing that and you're including focus, truly, you know the whole idea of of having those, you know, essentially a a a, um, a drive belt, you know, um, between them. To me, the whole solution to focus is to put them on a board and move the board, uh, move them together so that then you are, you're eliminating, you're eliminating slippage, you're eliminating. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Nick has just um, held up, you know, a TLR and TLRs are essentially use the move the board concept, right? Um, there are some that, that um, have helicals where the helicals move um, geared to each other. Um, but definitely that type of thing um, where it's the board. Um, yeah, and also even if your shutter speed was off, you could you also have to get, get your f-stops close together and it's all gonna be a bit of a fudge. And then the final question I have is, what's your viewing method with these? Are they digitized image, you know, files that you're- Yes. Okay, so you, so you can adjust exposure there too. Okay, so, so actually viewing method is what I want to talk about next. Ethan, can you roll roll four? Can you yes. get roll four on this? <laughs> Wait, I have the wrong one. That's roll two. Here's roll That's four. That's roll two. Okay, and roll four. we're rolling. There we go. Okay. Okay. And we're back. So, and we're back. Okay. I feel, I feel like so much like Mike Rosso and we're back, you know? Um, okay. So um, uh, let's talk about this. This is, and this is one of the things that I wanted to bring you on uh, for uh, Ian um, is the idea of viewing Um you have your stereo shot, you have your, it's on 35 millimeter, it's on 120. Um, uh, you, I, what's, what do you do for viewing? What is, what have you found is the best way to view? 
Well, the advent of the small screen has helped, I think, for like Instagram Absolutely. and all that. Suddenly, it's much easier to view. Certainly, the, I only put my stuff side by side because I don't like to mess it up with the anaglyph because people it messes the colours and everything up. Um, so I think viewing on the small screen or even a big screen, you can get some optical devices to help you, uh, works quite well. Um, Currently, that's mainly what I do. I free view on the small screen, I think you okay. would say. Yeah, okay. So free viewing is something like, and I'm holding up once again, uh, a picture um, where you have the left image on the left and the right image on the right. And you're just, you just let your eyes relax. And by, by nature, our, our eyes are crossing. Okay, so we're we're finding that point, uh, and our eyes cross at that point. Um, so, if you free view, you're just looking at it, and you're letting your eyes relax, and you uh, and they go straight ahead theoretically, or a little bit less than straight ahead, and you can see both images. Or, now, you parallel. There's also cross preview. There is also cross. There is, and, Ethan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can never do the cross, but I can do Neither the cross. Neither can I. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I, I can't gonna, do I'm going to make you guys some eye training focusing targets for both. Yeah. Thank well, you. <laughs> well, one of the things that I saw a lot maybe about four or five years ago on Flickr is the idea that you would have – the, you know, in this case, you would have two images that are relaxed. And then this image, which is the the right image, is moved over. And so there are three images in a row. So you can choose either the cross or the free view. And, and that's, the, you know, that's a nice inclusive way of I doing it. I think that's it. the most respectful uh, way to yeah. display uh, free view yeah. stereographs. I a agree. long time to do parallel view. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, yeah, and, and, and that is, this is an important part of the discussion. This is an important part of, um, of the, the, um, of the process of getting to this. So, so free viewing is, I agree. So here's something that I'll, I'll say, and this was something that, uh, that Ian was saying is that if you free view, the smaller the screen, the easier it is to free view because your eyes are not moving away from their natural very far. And this is something um, uh, that is, it's hugely important. Um, if you are doing a side-by-side -side or, a, you know, side-by-side -side or a cross, however, if you use the analglyph, the... Um, uh, the red blue, you can have a much bigger image. You can uh, project an image. You can have poster sized um, uh, because you're you're not doing that same kind of crossing. Am I right with that, Ethan? Yeah, although I would say you know preview you can make really big. You just have to back up. Well, okay, so it, it's it an becomes harder for a lot of issue. Say it again. I'm it sorry. It's harder for a lot of people. So our eyes do two things, right? They Well, they do a lot of things, but uh, two of the things that they do that are applicable here is 
they have parallax, right? So how, how much mm-hmm. they're towed in towards each other. And they also focus in and out, right? And our okay. brain generally takes the focus cue from the parallax points, right? So if my eyes are like this, where these two rays meet, they're going to focus here, right? If my eyes yeah. are like this, they're going to focus at infinity. And the the trick, whether it's parallel or free view is, or sorry, parallel across view is to um, change independently where your eyes focus and where they uh, converge. Um, and so the more uh, ductile you make your uh, brain at, at sort of controlling those functions of your eyes independently, the larger uh, a free view you can look at or or the closer, right? Um, and then okay. this is all sort of eliminated by that stereopticon that you showed earlier where um, it just uses lenses to refocus your eyes and you just look straight ahead. Right. And so, I, yeah, oh, so I ahead. feel like there's um, maybe, a, maybe someone like me who has uh, eyes that are both farsighted but quite a different degree like my my two eyes have noticeably different magnification levels as well as acuity and i think this probably gets in the way of of feeling happy about using these uh you know unaided methods of give you a real headache trying yeah yeah well but um if you're using you know these glasses would help these these are custom so that they're different one from the other, and that does help. Yeah. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm I'm lucky enough that both my eyes right now have about the same vision, but that has something to do with. And this is this is the viewer. This is the stereopticon. Um, now I'm gonna show it like this. And and for those of you who are listening at home, um, you, you've seen these. These are the old. Um, goggles that you put up to your face. They've got lenses. <laughs> of course, my camera's dying right no, it's, now. It's back. Okay, yeah, but it's going to die again. Um, so I might switch my cameras here. Hang on a second. I apologize for this, for everybody at home. Settings, video, I am going to switch to this one. There we go. Okay. So... Um, this is the stereopticon, um, and it, so it has the goggles and it has, um, two lenses in it that are equivalent, pretty much equivalent to reading glasses. Um, so you could probably build one with just basic reading glasses. Um, and, and a big nose piece. And yeah. A, yeah. yeah. And there's a piece that comes down the middle that keeps your eyes from seeing, keeps the the right eye from seeing the left image and the left eye from seeing the right image. And then you can move it in and out and, uh, you know, and you can, and that allows you to focus within these lenses and it allows the image to fuse, okay? So that is, now those things, stereopticons, if they're fully working and fully functional, uh, they're about a hundred bucks on eBay. Um, this was considerably cheaper because I it didn't have the the handles, so I three D printed the handles. Um, so um, you know that that saved me about seventy five percent 
on on the price of that. Um, but the the deal that I really want to uh, want to talk about that is if you're using this kind of system, it is dependent on the device. It is dependent on the viewer. So how do you, how do you, I mean, you, you can't really get past that. You, you have to pass this around at a party, right? Um, uh, so that's a little bit unsatisfying. Um, now, uh, okay. So we've talked about free viewing. We've talked and we've talked about, um, you know, relaxing and then crossing your eyes. Um, we've talked about, um, view masters. Um, Ian, you have a slide mount system, correct? I have, I bought the matching Bakelite Kodak stereo viewer to go with my camera. Okay. Uh, which is really basic. It's just got a three volt uh, MES lamp in it and two big D cells. Um, okay. <laughs> so it's 800 uh, pounds to hold up. To no, it weighs a ton, yeah. Um, uh, I cleaned it all up. And so I bought some RB, they're called RBT mounts, slide mounts. Uh -huh. And then you, you can pop these open like conventional 35 mil ones, but they've got um an alignment gauge and tiny little rails you put in so that you can not only correct horizontally but if you mess the rails have got orientation so you can put the rails upside down as well so you can correct for vertical um but i have to say all i've done is got them by eye as best i can mounted uh, the, the um so i cut the obviously cut the five plus pieces off my um reel of e6 mm -hmm. And then put them into the mounts, really. And I have to say, in the viewer, they look lovely. It does work, you know. Um, okay. It does work, and that I can see why that that was sold as a product originally. That you sent your film back to Kodak, obviously, as ever. Yeah, absolutely. And there are um, uh, the ViewMaster. Uh, there's view ViewMaster cameras and ViewMaster mounting. Um, there is, yeah, 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 there is. Yeah. Um, uh, so that would be uh, another way uh, of of going about, you know, the viewing. Now we have talked. Um, uh, you know, when we were, we talked, uh, we've talked a lot about shooting. Now I'm going to say that. You know, uh, Ian, you talked about having leading lines that go off into the distance, and that's something that's good. And especially with your relationship to locomotives, you know, <laughs> they're handy, right? Uh, yeah, it's a few issues. So <laughs> don't go there. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so then there are also um, uh, the thing that I've found is that if I go for really far distance. I have, uh, I, I, I produce something, it, it looks flat. And I think that this has to do with the fact that it's an, you know, yeah. I use the standard You need to move like um, 10 feet away between left yeah. and right or something like that to get yeah. there. Now, now, living in Florida, I don't have a ton of opportunity <laughs> for, for mountain shots. Um, but, but yeah, I, but that's essentially, you know, the problem. Um, one of, one of the things that I found that are the most successful is 
foreground, middle ground, and and far ground, background. Um, that really makes for the best image. And that leads me into another point. Um, the, the Kodak camera that you use is an F3.5. Is that what you said, Lions? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it, no matter, and a, a F3.5, and it's a small, small image size, no matter how far away from the lens you're getting, really, you're going to have a, a pretty close to total depth of field after maybe three or four feet, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. That to me is a huge key. You want to be shooting uh, f8 or smaller on a 35, 35 millimeter. You want to be shooting um, with as much depth of field because the thing about three dimensions that our eyes see is if I look out the window, I can focus immediately between the curtain and the tree and and I focus immediately. And the focus is something that is done, you know, instantaneously or or as close to that I don't necessarily notice it. In other so words, there's a very long depth of field, you're able to focus to move your eyes so you can focus on this area and that area and that area as you and, go out. Right. And there's no such thing as depth of bokeh. There just isn't. <laughs> depth I that was going. <laughs> um, I think that that's my next yeah, yeah. Uh, solo album, is Depth of Bokeh. Um, <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, so, so there... Uh, let, let's talk about one other viewing system. Now, I currently have an iPhone 12, which is a hell of a, it has a hell of a camera on there. But I had an iPhone 4 at the time when I was walking through a Target store. And I always go, one of the things I always stop at is the electronics clearance area at Target. I always look at it. And they had a viewer that allowed you to put an iPhone 4 and earlier phone. It didn't work with the iPhone 5 because it didn't fit for some reason. But it was a viewer and it had two, uh, it had a division and it had lenses. And what it allowed, it was, it was for 3D viewing. Now it was a generic device. It wasn't connected to anything like you know, to any service, as far as I could tell, they were selling the hardware. Um, but at that, and one of the things that you could do at the time, every, people were shooting 3D video. And so you could go to YouTube, bring up a 3D video, you know, where it's the two images side by side, and you could put it in that viewer and you could see the 3D. Um, we have right now, um, the, uh, and something that I have not used before, but like the, um, ocul Oh, look, um, now, um, Nick has a cardboard version that he has pulled out and it, it's, and is that to put your phone in? I think Nick. that's probably like Google. Cardboard. Yeah, and Nick yeah, is yeah, yeah. and Nick does not have his headphones on, so he doesn't know that we're talking to <laughs> him. So, so Nick, tell us about the device that you just pulled out there. 
It's it's made out of cardboard. It's folded cardboard. And yeah, I, it was on my shelf. I can't remember where it came from, why I have it, and I don't really. There must be intended to view something at a certain distance. It's got lenses, mm -hmm. a nose hole, and some instructions. But it seems to me it's what you're talking about. Yeah, it is very, very much the same. And it's and because it's open. Okay, we'll wait till Nick's done knocking his mic there. Okay. <laughs> um, it's it's very much an open source, open concept in that you can um uh you can um put any device in there or you can put a picture. Now I want to talk for just a little bit about how I'm printing these pictures. I have a, a Canon selfie printer. It's a die sub printer. And one of the, one of the things about, a, about die sub printers is they can render black, just super rich black. So um, I love it for black and white um, photos. Um, but it is an ideal size for putting in the stereo opticon and for free viewing. If you're a free viewer, you don't want anything bigger than a four by six image. And oh, look at that. That is wonderful. Can you guys see what I'm seeing? No, you can't. Okay. Anyway, um, it, is, uh, it is the ideal way to print these things. Uh, because th those, you know, if you've got people who who can free view, you can just hand these things around, or you can hand around the viewer, and um, and that works very well. Um, now, uh, are there other ways of viewing that we have not talked about? So many, uh, so many. Okay, so, many. so even well, the lenticular prints, aren't they? Which I never oh, really yeah. like. Absolutely. Love lenticular prints. Right. And then there's when you split things into different color channels, there's that method. That's anaglyphs. So, I mean, I think we should say, and we haven't really covered the principle behind this for anybody who's watching who's not. Probably everybody who's watching knows all of these methods and, and the science behind it. But basically, all of the viewing methods uh, have one thing in common, which is they are showing one image to one eye and another image to the other eye in your brain thinks right. you're looking at a three-dimensional space, right? Uh, and so uh, we got Francois, like, losing his mind over here trying to tell us all of all of the different methods that, that we're coming up with. And so there's, <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear from him later, um, there's uh, a whole bunch of ways of doing it, right? So Ian brought up lenticular prints, which I love. And we, you know, in the capturing methods, we never talked about multi-lens uh, multi arrays, you know, where you can have, 10, 20 uh, images. But, yeah. But let's just talk about... Abnerentia, which does a sequenced image, but if you don't move it... Right. It, no, I've got that. I've it got stays. That or the... Um, oh, what's the one that cost... The plastic one that costs $1,000 right uh, now? Nimslo uh, or Nishika. Nim Nimslo. Yeah, yeah. They're really expensive. So, I haven't got one of those. So I'll, I'll break out a digital prototype of a Nimslo that I had been working on that had a lot of power consumption and uh, FCC issues years ago. But, you know, basically the idea is you take a left and a right image. Let's forget about the uh -huh. others for now for the sake of simplicity. And then back, to, back in the day, they actually did this in a dark room is they would have a mask 
that had stripes, right? So you would print vertical lines of frame one, and then you'd shift them over and print vertical stripes of uh, frame two. And then you have a microprism array that gets mounted to the front of this image after it's developed. And basically, um, they're magnifying glasses that change the angle of view. So your right eye from a certain distance would only see the even stripes and your left eye would only see the odd stripes or vice versa. And then you wind up free viewing a 3D image. Um, it has a lot of resolution um, limitations and also distance limitations. You kind of have to be at the right distance from the print for each eye to only see one set. Um, this is maybe common in like uh, billboards and, and movie posters where they actually take um, a single uh, piece of cardboard or something and they fan fold mm -hmm. it uh you know like a like a staircase at 90 degrees you don't get a 3d image but as you walk by it you see one image from one side and another image from another mm -hmm. side the same sort of idea uh, yeah those they made those cool plastic postcards that way too and yeah. i don't know if that, if that was a, a that zigzag was or was it a fresnel it was some some kind of trick yeah that that was a lenticular uh, lens over a standard print and i actually have a picture of baby jesus uh, above my toilet that is uh, 3D in that way. I, I really love it. Um, and then, oh, so by, a, by the way, I just looked up uh, Walgreens photo lenticular print five by five for three ninety nine. Yeah, so they're pretty inexpensive, and you can buy the yeah. um, you can buy the lenticular prisms separately in many different lines per inch. Uh, I actually have a bunch of them over here that were going onto the view screen of this camera that I was building so that you could um, write a Python script and and have two images interlaced and free view on the back of your camera. Um, and actually, a camera did that. It was the Real 3D, I believe, by Fuji. Uh, it was not a very popular camera, but it was really, really cool. Um, yeah, the screen's the best part of the camera, Ethan. Yep, yep. And they, you know, they... They built a bunch of uh, cell phones, like Android phones, I want to say around mm -hmm. 2011 that had this. But the issue with those is while they had wonderful screens, they had stereo cameras uh, where like on, on your iPhone, it just had like one camera and then another camera. So it was great for stereo if you were like two inches from your subject. <laughs> yeah. uh, but at any real depth, you would get cardboard cutouts at best or cardboarding. Uh, I think was the yeah. term. There's also some other uh, methods that you might do, right? So there's, uh, Francois brought up LCD shutter glasses where, you know, you use a digital screen that uh, flashes image Super one cool. back and forth with image two, right? And then you have LCD shutters like um, Steve and Dave's uh, camera shutter where one eye closes and you see the left image and the other eye closes, you see the right image. Um, and then there's also cross-polarization, which is like if you go to a movie theater these days and see a 3D movie, um, basically you have uh, two polarized filters on each eye. One is polarized up and one is polarized sideways, or more likely both at opposing 45-degree angles uh, from the vertical. And uh, you project two images um, through polarized lenses so you only get polarized light in one direction from camera or from projector one you only get polarized light from projector two and when they bounce back um you know each eye only gets one image unless you're sitting in a movie theater like this with your head tilted to the side and then you get half an image from both eyes and you get a headache and you mm -hmm. wind up 
angry at 3D movies and say this doesn't work. Um, now, the, also, the other thing is uh, with those 3D movies is um, both my mother-in-law and my wife have vision that did not fuse, that doesn't fuse. So those are meaningless views, right? I mean, but I think they, I think they don't have vision that doesn't fuse. If they can see 3D while they're walking around with their own two eyes. They can't is what oh, I'm trying to say. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't see 3D in real life, you're not going to be able to see it with a photo most likely. Although right. maybe we could invent right. some, uh, you know, uh, augmented things for sure. the disabled. Um, <laughs> but it, there's also um, like a lenticular screen. Uh, you're saying, I forget who bought a 3D TV. Um, those, instead of yeah. using lenticular. Right. Yeah. Right, so they had a, a few that had lenticular arrays, but those have real resolution limitations. And so what they did on a lot of those is they striped them with a polarized filter. And so instead right. of projecting through a polarized filter, you put on the glasses and each eye can only see one set of stripes. Yeah, and you have to sync, sync them in, yeah. And, and then, then what do you do when you have a family of five in four glasses? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you take turns. But there's also yeah, uh, right. We exactly. we didn't didn't ever touch on wiggle grams, uh, which is interesting. Yes, you guys were talking about moving your head, and it reminded me of uh, cats and and like uh, large feline predators uh, when they get down and they're stalking prey. Often you'll see them move their heads side to side, yeah. and what they're doing is actually figuring out a super stereo view and getting a really good idea of how far they have to pounce. You see a lot of uh, yeah. predatory animals do that. And that's sort of the effect of the wiggle gram where you uh, actually with one eye can perceive depth by playing a GIF or a video back and forth and back and forth between multiple stereo views. Right. And, and with certain birds of prey, uh, like owls, they have to do it because their eyes are fixed in order to get the incredible high acuity vision they have their eyes, are, they can't move them around in their head. They're locked, staring straight ahead. That's also why they have to have such a flexible neck because yeah. <laughs> you've got to move the, your whole head to see in, in a different direction. It's a, yeah. it's pretty, it's quite different. It's like, I guess it's like having a tripod. And I've also seen a lot of birds, um, essentially they're, they're, their whole body is a gimbal. So if you see a bird perching on a, on a uh, you know, a flexible stalk of grass or something like that, they have to move their whole body in order to keep their head still to keep their vision clear and that oh, takes yeah. that takes quite a bit of energy you, and so you see that with with ducks but what they're doing the the thing with ducks is that as they're walking along their head stays fixed in space as right. their bodies move forward yep. what they're doing is they're doing the uh search for motion um well, right so in order to that, in order to keep their their head, you know, stable, yeah. they're moving their body to, to accommodate. But yeah. I have also noticed we place uh, forged steel stakes with curly tops and things all th through our garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, the birds always prefer them to natural vegetation because they save so much energy. They don't have to do the, the physical movement of their bodies oh, in order okay. to keep an acute vision. And so they, yeah. they'll come flying in and they'll pick every single immobile perch first uh, and then use the vegetation if they have to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, 
guys, what do we say um, that we 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 close the podcast version uh, and then we're going to open up the YouTube version um, for uh, anybody who wants to join us for the discussion. So um, as as we end, um, Nick, do you have any shout outs? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. You think for a moment. Uh, Ethan, do you have any shout outs? Anything? I, you wanna... All of my shout outs, I think, are about to show up in the live stream. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Ian, do you want to shout out? Say hi to anybody? Well, I just uh, want to say, um, well, just hi to most of my colleagues out there on the um, analog camera community, really. Um, okay. Keep shooting, guys, you know. <laughs> and the lovely oh. new Kodak Ektachrome, which I really enjoy shooting. Ah, cool, cool. I enjoy I, I'm looking not... at your Ektachrome shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Um, okay. Nick, did you remember any shout-outs? He's running around kind of frantic. Graham, go ahead. Um, I'm going to play this music. Okay, yeah. Oh wait, yeah. So I do have a shout out um, to Steve. Steve Lloyd sent me one of yeah. his six seven nine um, yeah. cameras. This is a Mamiya Press version, which takes the S shaped backs, um, yeah. which means it's a little different than my homunculus, which takes the uh, uh, the more the standard graph lock type yeah. backs. So Eric, it makes a nice is- companion to that. It's Quite a bit wider, but a little more compact front to back. Yeah, um, Eric, and Matthew, I'm really enjoying experimenting with this camera. It's it's definitely a lot of fun. And to Eric Matthew, this is the camera that I forgot to mention. He asked me about um, cameras that use the uh, 65 millimeter um, uh, press, uh, Mamiya press. So, um, okay, so I'm going to say thank you very much to Robbie Cribs. Uh, of Soundtrap Studios, who uh, composed our music that you guys heard this time. Yay! Okay, so uh, we'll let Robbie play us out. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks. Thanks, Robbie.